Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the um, ninth class of our 34-class review of jhana. Um, in our second class, we learned um, how to establish the right method for jhana meditation and then how to apply that in, uh, to different themes of the Dhamma. And then in subsequent classes, also how to recognize that concentration is actually increasing. And the reason why we do that is so that our, so that our practice becomes self-empowering. We recognize the benefits. The Buddha often talked about becoming rightly self-awakened, self-awakened. We do it to ourselves. Nobody else can do this for us. But we, but we also understand that we need uh, three things. We need to understand that a human being, Siddhartha Gautama, awakened, gained full human maturity. We understand that he left his Dhamma, and somehow that Dhamma is still here today. And we have a well-informed and a well-focused Sangha. Um, all of those things are important in developing the Dhamma. Um, in this sutta, this the Sariputta Sutta, it's a short sutta, and it um, it can seem a little difficult. It seems to be a little difficult about how to apply it. Um, but we, we understand that Sariputta, along with Moggallana, came to the Buddha rather early in, in the Buddha's dispensation. Um, was with the Buddha for a couple of weeks. Sariputta awakened Moggallana shortly thereafter. And they became the Buddha's, Sariputta, uh, uh, Siddhartha's chief disciples for the rest of his life. And they all died within a short period of time, uh, much later, 45 years later. And so here, Sariputta is answering a question from Ananda, a most basic question. But there's so much that's covered in this, this short sutta. Uh, let me get to it, and I'll point that out to you. On one occasion, Venerable Ananda visited his friend, Venerable Sariputta. They exchanged courteous greetings, and Ananda took a seat next to his friend. Ananda asked the question, Dear friend, could one develop concentration to the point that they would not be sensitive to the perception of the earth or the elements of the earth? So in this case, the, Ananda is using the word sensitive um, to mean distracted by seeking after certain spiritual ideals that were common during the Buddhist time and just as common in modern Buddhism. And you'll see that as I continue. Ananda continued, could one develop concentration to the point that they would not be sensitive to the infinitude of space or of consciousness, meaning not being, being grasping after trying to attain some kind of understanding of the infinitude of space or the infinitude of consciousness. Again, things that are still taught in modern Buddhism. Those are just distractions. The Buddha always taught those common so-called spiritual themes of his time as just mere distractions. There's nothing there. 
Ananda continues, could one develop concentration to the point that they would not be sensitive to nothingness? Right? Anybody's practiced modern Buddhism, they've heard about nothingness and trying to achieve nothingness and understand nothingness and understand emptiness and understand that everything is empty. Well, that's just annihilation. That's hurtful. It's actually, to me, it's beyond hurtful. Could one develop concentration that they would not be sensitive to nothingness or of neither perception nor non-perception? Could one develop concentration to the point that they would not be sensitive to this world or the next world? Again, most of modern Buddhism resolves itself in some future um, endless eons in the future destination, which always was pretty disappointing to me. Then he says, would this one still be sensitive to what is occurring? So Ananda, excuse me, Ananda understood the Dhamma well enough to know where not to go. But he also, and he also understood the point to simply be a reference point to what's occurring, to be sensitive and only sensitive to what is occurring. But he, his question was, can you, could you not use your deepening concentration and not be distracted to, to these, which really should be seen as common themes, even though nothingness, emptiness, neither perception or non-perception, they sound um, almost otherworldly. They're all worldly. They, they've occurred here in the world. The, the idea of nothingness didn't come from nothingness. It came from somebody who dreamed it up. The idea of emptiness or neither perception or non-perception. These are worldly things. So what Ananda is saying, can I not be distracted by worldly things and still be present with what is occurring? Saraputta answers, yes, dear friend Ananda, even with great concentration, this one could be sensitive to what is occurring. Ananda says, please explain how one could develop concentration so that they would not be sensitive to the earth or to this world or the next world and still be sensitive to what is occurring. So these things are what Ananda is getting hung up on, isn't it? And he can't figure out how do I get past this? Because he has a vested interest in establishing himself in these realms that human beings should be trying to establish themselves. There's no humanity there. We can't live in the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. We can't live in the realm of nothingness or emptiness or neither, neither or the infinitude of consciousness or the infinitude of space. We don't live there. It's nice to dream about that. And I can still remember a little boy looking up at the stars, laying down on the grass in our backyard in the summer, just thinking, this is incredible. What's out there? All the, and imagine myself flying around the cosmos. But we belong here on earth. We're human beings. And if we give up, if we overlook the fact that we're human beings because we're, we're convinced to grasp after more, we've missed this life. We've missed the opportunity to be a human being. And that's the greatest opportunity we can have because it's the only opportunity that we have to live a life, to be a reference point to what is occurring. Let me read this again. Please explain how we could how one could develop concentration 
so that they would not be sensitive to the earth or to this world or the next world and still be sensitive to what is occurring, the whole point. Let me explain, Sariputta said. On one occasion, I was here in, in Savati at the blind man's grove. I developed concentration to the point that I was neither sensitive to the earth or to this world or the next world. In other words, he just abandoned seeking after those things. Yet, I continue to be sensitive to what is occurring. Please tell me, dear friend Sariputta, what were you sensitive of at that time? Ananda, I was sensitive to the cessation of becoming further ignorant of Four Noble Truths. He knew what he had attained. He was no longer fooling himself. I was sensitive to the unbinding from views ignorant of the Four Noble Truths. He knew what he was doing in this process. I was sensitive of the arising and the passing away of all phenomena. He understood impermanence. And then he says, just as a wood fire's flame arise and pass away, I was sensitive of unbinding from all wrong views. Meaning in this moment, he had the inner poise to know that he was seeing things as they were. He was a reference point to what was occurring. Zach, you had a question? I was going to ask you to repeat one line, but... No, what was it? It was pretty much just the. I think it was, it was the first of the. Um, well, there. Ananda, I was sensitive to the cessation of becoming further ignorant of four noble truths. Yeah. And what was the significance of that? You just want to hear it again? I can't see if you're. Yes, yes, yep. So, well, Zach points out really kind of the essence that. Saraputta is making a point of that he was sensitive. He, he recognized that he had abandoned ignorance of Four Noble Truths, which is, again, this little sutta contains the whole point of the Dhamma. This is what we're doing, right? There's more to it. You know, there's an eightfold path that we integrate. There's a right meditation method that we engage in. But ultimately, concentration is, so in this moment, I know that I am free of views ignorant of four noble truths. I'm witnessing my, my own reality, right? My own reality. I'm here for my life. I'm present for it. And you're present for your life. And we're sharing our lives together from that meaningful point of right here, right now. There's no conflict at that point, is there? When we're simply a reference point to what's occurring, what could be conflicting? We're just here. This is what's occurring. And all of that, that, all of that speculation that we drag around with us because we don't understand our own reality is now gone. And it's all of that speculation, all of that fabrication that causes stress and unhappiness and distraction in our lives. And when we can be well concentrated enough to realize that I'm no longer doing that to myself. We have liberated ourselves. We have become rightly self-awakened. And this one sutta probably describes what that means, rightly self-awakened, better than any other one, although there's a lot of good ones here that say that. So this is the point. Um, I'd like to hear if you understand this as the point, and if not, if you have any questions, let's have them 
right now. Jeff? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I, I, I understand the, the, that is, of course, the point, right? Further ignorance of the four noble truths. Um, that ignorance leads to fabrication and the whole chain of events that constitutes the dependent origination that leads to suffering and dukkha. So, but uh, you know what I was really struck by was, and I, I guess, uh, that Ananda seems so uh, uh, relatable. He, 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 right. I, I, I hear before, I guess I had imagined, or maybe I hadn't even thought about it, but I assumed Ananda, Ananda was, um, uh, had, had a, a glow about him and a halo and maybe walk three inches off, the ground and, you know, and, and, and this kind of, it, this kind of grounds him as being, um, a fellow human, um, yeah. Ma makes him completely relatable. I find. Yeah. I, I do too. He's a, Ananda's an interesting uh, character in that, you know, in the play of the original Sangha, in that he didn't fully awaken, gain full human maturity until about a month after his cousin passed. But he's, throughout the, the Buddhist teaching career, Ananda is asking these very subtle and profound questions but almost from the point of view of, I don't even know what I'm asking. And yet he's asking these very profound questions. And he brings out, I mean, there's many where he's bringing out Saraputta. Uh, this is just a, a brilliant exposition from Saraputta, but it's Ananda that instigated it, isn't it? And, and, and there's so much like that. Ron might want to talk more about that later, I would bet. But thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Mary, what do you think? I'm on a different computer so that I can get in the class, and it's low on battery. So if I drop off, I will join by my phone. Um, I was kind of struck by thinking about Ananda. I was sen sensitive to the cessation of becoming further ignorant of the Four Noble Truths. Just the, you know, again, even though we've heard these words before, but the significance of um, the cessation piece, the, the letting go of the clinging and craving that causes the ignorance, that causes the wrong view. Like, you can't have right view without recognizing you have wrong view. So it almost becomes... The goal is to be sensitive to the wrong view because the goal isn't right view. Right view is the outcome. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. And that's sort of what's dawning on me. Same with right intention. My intention is to um, be sensitive to my clinging and craving so that I can go from wrong intention um, even though you're not intending to have wrong intention, but you're sensitive to it, you recognize it, so that you can have right intention, which is to let go and recognize what you're clinging and craving to. Yes, you recognize what you're doing to yourself and for yourself. Mm -hmm, that's causing the suffering, and you acknowledge yeah, it, take responsibility beautiful. for it, and then let it go. 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and I like how you said the right right view is something that occurs. It's not right. something we grasp, isn't it? Yeah, you can't it's have it. it as a goal. Like the Eightfold Path is a path, not a goal. It's, yeah, and it's, this it's is, just an outcome. And so as you're on good. the path, you're being sensitive to being distracted off the path and recognizing these um behaviors or fabrications or thoughts or whatever that are um, binding and are clinging and craving and that our, our work is the unbinding so that we can have right intention and right view. Yeah. Well said, Mary. Thank you. Thank you for the teaching. Thanks. Dr. Kevin. Hi, Dan. Yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I, I think I do, but I do understand it. And, uh, you know, would reiterate what Jeff and Mary have said, you know, mainly it's to give up these fabrications of these, um, these realms that you could dwell in, to give up ignorance and to be released from suffering. And then he even gives a very concrete metaphor with the extinguishment of a flame it's just the extinguishment and that is nibbana so um, it's very very profound it seems very simple but it's just really very deep thing it's deceptive yeah well it is and you think about the significance of this teaching during the buddhist time when all of the modern um religions which, which at that time in northern India, southern Nepal were mostly based on the Vedas and the Upanishads, the precursors to modern Hinduism, um, that all resolved in, in one of these fabricated realms, you know, nothingness or emptiness or, or um, the, the, the infinitude of space and all that stuff. That was taught as this is what we should be striving for. If you're really smart, if you're really one of us, you know, you're going to you're going to want to get into the infinitude of space at some point. Well, the Buddha came along and said, basically, that's all nonsense. And twenty six hundred years later, John Haskell comes along and says, that's all nonsense. And because that's what I found, you know, that's what I found. And uh, I don't want to uh, I always get myself in trouble. Um. All of that fabricated and speculative, speculative grasping after non-human um, experiences were what I thought I wanted. And so, of course, I was happy to chase after that, even, even though I was getting more and more confused, more and more frustrated, until I finally realized, wait a minute. An awakened human being taught what it means to be an awakened human being. And what else would he teach? And that means to be here now, to be just what this sutta is saying, to be a reference point to what is occurring, to simply be here. And that changes everything, doesn't it? So, Cody, well, welcome back to our saga. You don't have to say anything, but we'd like to hear what you have to say. Um, I think. Mm -hmm. Prefer to just listen to it. I don't know how much I understand about all of it. So. Yeah, it can be a, it can be a little confusing at first. 
uh, feel free to send me an email if you want to talk, and I can maybe get you going in the right direction. Sure. Hello, Adam. Do you mind if I put a, a light do. on you? Please do. Does anybody not want to be on camera? Hello, Adam. Everybody. Uh, thank you, John. Um, so that seems very straightforward and, and, and simple and, and obvious. How then um, does, what is the pothole people ran into that created this thing in modern Buddhism where they're imagining these, all these other realms? Thank you for asking. It all, it started during the Buddhist time while he was still alive. There were, there were many stories um, uh, in the suttas where people wanted to change the Buddhist teachings during his time to be more magical and mystical. Um, the Buddhist cousin, uh, Devadatta, tried to kill the Buddha twice and almost succeeded, but um, because he wanted to, to have a more magical, mystical um, teaching, but he also wanted to be you know, the head guy, too. Um, as soon as the Buddha died, there was a, a, a lot of um, eager people wanting to make it more magical and mystical. They wanted to establish this Buddha as not a human Buddha, but as a magical, mystical, you know, savior. And, and one Buddha among endless future Buddhas and endless past Buddhas. And that same teaching was carried on throughout history um, and maintained through different lineages. And it's still eagerly taught today. Um, so what was your question? Well, <laughs> What I'm wondering is, how do we avoid the same problems? Oh, by by coming to class and keeping, I, I, honestly, and keeping the practice within the framework of the Eightfold Path. If, if something comes up that cannot be experienced right here, right now, in this human life, it's not something the Buddha taught. But if it sounds like something that you want to understand or grasp after a little bit, bring it to class. And we'll talk about it, David. And if it doesn't answer the two basic questions, you're experiencing or seeking something outside asking the question, what is suffering and how to cease it? You should abandon it because it's not helpful. And it's only going to lead to distraction and further suffering. Yeah. There's only two things they were taught. So if you're looking to fly among the cosmos, I don't know how that's any suffering. Yeah, even, I mean, any time you find yourself caught up in eye-making, and that's usually felt by tension, you know, you, you know that you're not, you're engaged in something that is outside of the Dhamma. And what should we do with it when we recognize that we're engaged in something that's outside of the Dhamma? Well, it's very important that you first beat yourself up a little bit. So you, know, <laughs> you take a breath and you just very gently say, this is not me. This is not mine. And what we're teaching ourselves is, is you know, the, the world is an incredible place. It's a wonderful place. It's a horrible place. It's all those things. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be just what it is. And there's not a, there's not a riddle to it. What's going on in one of my favorite towns, Lahaina, is supposed to happen. You know, it sounds awful to say it like that. But there is dukkha. 
I'm like, I got a smile on my face. I'm just, I'm happy. I'm just got a smile on my face because of the do because of the Dhamma, not because of what happened. But that's the answer. This is what occurs in the world. And if I want to have a human life in this world, I have to be accepting of all of this, don't I? The Buddha really taught one thing. Radical acceptance, but a very well-focused radical acceptance. Radical acceptance of this moment. No matter where I am, no matter when I am. And so these the ignorance that would cause me to establish myself in some kind of non-physical realm with just a little bit of logic has to be rooted in what? A lack of acceptance of me, isn't it? And so how can I expect to be here now, thank you, Alan Watts, if I hate me? Or if I think I have to have some kind of special power to be me? Or have some kind of special empowerment? Or some kind of special teacher? Or a special haircut? A special lineage? No, there's no justification that I need to be a human being. And there's no explanation. I am what I am. Right? So getting back, I think I'm answering your question. Absolutely. When we end ignorance of Four Noble Truths, we, see, we cease fabricating anything about ourselves in relation to what's occurring. We're simply a human being. And that's peaceful, that's calm, that's understanding, that's power, that's liberation. Thank you. Bridget. I think what's coming up for me with this teaching is a first, a great reminder that the last time I heard this teaching, I was feeling so much relief. From the permission to set down the quest <laughs> so that's still with me and I'm still grateful for that and what's kind of coming up that's new is that when I approached this practice I was fearful that it would be a limiting practice yep but with the what I think the Buddha is saying is that as a human, you're going to be curious and you're going to have an imagination and you're going to wonder, and that's wonderful, but it's when you cling or grasp after or create or, you know, are averse, and it becomes part of your eye-making. So it's okay to wonder about the world, to be curious what's going on in other places, yeah. to, uh, to even hope. Or, you know, I wouldn't want you to suffer. It may be what's happening, but I can still have empathy for you. So we don't have to take that out of it, you know, like with some of those practices that are about, you know, annihilation. Um, it's human to care. It's human to wonder. It's yeah. human to do all those things. But what is, I think, so simple, what makes this practice, on one hand, you know, just more simple than anything else I've heard, but more challenging 
is that it's asking you to apply a level of skill to be able to feel the empathy without needing to be a savior. You know, so it yeah. brings up that dichotomy. What 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 quality is necessary in order to do that? Concentration. Yeah. And that's what requires practice. Yeah. And those other kinds of states of mind might be so appealing because they don't require practice. And they don't require concentration. Right. In fact, they, they require uh, almost a compulsive imagination rather than concentration. It's easier. Yeah. And then you get to imagine that you're all kinds of things you aren't that are you yeah. know, powerful or you know, all these other things, um, which it's very hard or it can be very hard to accept that you don't have that kind of power, that you really are just a human having a human life. So this teaching really does just like take you full circle around yeah. the Dhamma. So. That's great insight, Richard. Thank you. It's not a lack of concentration. It's a lack of right concentration. That's that's true. Because it may take all the concentration you can muster to be in these realms. Yeah. Stay there. It's it's wrong concentration. That's why the Buddha taught, and he called it right meditation. You know, there was all the Buddha studied and mastered all the modern. Um, of his time, meditation techniques. The, the, two, the stories about his studies with Alara Kalam and Udeka Ramaput to show that. Um, and he, he dismissed both of these practices and other ones because they didn't lead to his goal, which was what? Which was understanding what it means to be a human being. The other ones did. The other understood what it means to be, you know, in some other realm, but that's not what he was looking for. And it's not what we're looking for. We're we we're here, you know, because we want to understand what the hell's going on. You know, what does it mean to be a human being? And that's its own reward, isn't it? That's what we're finding out to be present for our life. It's just remarkable. Thank you, Bridget. Hello, Zach. Thank you for the teaching, John. It's always hard to follow Master Bridget over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I'm just struck by how much this speaks to living an ordinary life yeah. and the or you, you speak of the ordinariness of it all. Yeah. And I think prior to finding this practice, I would try to squeeze so much out of moments in my life. Yeah. You almost are, um, you all, what's the right word? Ah, The way we live our lives today, we're almost forced to do that. I can't think of the, there's one word that says that I can't think of it. Forget what's that? Compelled? Yes, compelled. We're almost compelled to think that way today, aren't we? Yeah, there's a lot going on in the world that would make you think that you need to be certain ways and have certain things and yeah. whatnot, have certain experiences. And again, whether that's squeezing, you know, uh, looking at the stars into something bigger and grander. I mean, that's, that's essentially what they're talking about. Right? That's what you, you had mentioned, looking up in the stars and flying around and, yeah, and making a lot of meaning out of this moment. You can do that normally. And, you know, I, I had, a, I tried to do that through substances for a long time. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, Julie and I were sitting, you know, just watching 
the wind blow through some palm trees the other day, and I just said, this is wonderful, but it is, it is just the most ordinary thing. Yeah, you know, the wind has been blowing through palm trees in the Caribbean with birds flying around for millions and millions of years. Yeah, but you were present for that wonderful moment. Exactly, I was yeah. just present for it. That's it. That's that was that was a meaningful moment in your life. That's why that's why you were alive. But I also don't need to be there for that to happen. There's nothing about me that makes that moment special. It's yeah. just being present for that moment. Yep, so. that's right. He was trying to get out of here so late. It was sort of meaningful um, because of your, your presence in that moment, not so much that it was, there's something significant about, about it in itself. Exactly. And it's the ordinariness of that yeah. that makes it yeah. meaningful because exactly. you live in that and you're, you're there experiencing it. Exactly. Adam, I didn't hear what you said, but you let off with it. Oh, I just said that, uh, or is it, uh, that it was meaningful because of his presence in that moment. Yeah. Not that there was something significant about it otherwise. Yeah. It yeah. Beyond this, and there wasn't some, some beyond it. Yeah, we, we see things and experience things just utterly as they are, without having to color them in any way, you know, or 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 aggrandize something to make it more than it is, because we don't want to have an ordinary moment, because we think that we're above that. You know, again, it's it's all I making. Great perceptions were thrown around here, right, Laura? Very. Here's Laura. I just want to continue just sitting and listening. Um, but yeah, just what Zach was saying. It's like there are these in the society that we live in. There are a lot of distractions. You know, with yep. technology, especially, it's you know, oh, should I scroll through Instagram on this dopamine drip? Until I pass out at night. <laughs> that sounds like fun. This, like this extractive, like, what can I extract out of this moment rather than just be like Zach and Julia, you know, experience that beautiful moment, the wind, the palm trees, um, or, you know, like just doing things that, like for me, being in my garden, you know, looking at this mycelium going through the soil and just being there and observing and I guess this whole but in this sutta and, and you said something John I was going to ask you about you know they talk about the opposite extreme annihilation nothingness emptiness and then you said I thought that that's what I wanted and I was going to ask you about that like why as oh. humans like do we it's kind of sad that we you know, we try to escape into that a lot, you know, that nothing yeah. as a defense. You know. I grasped after it because it was what the the, the particular uh, practice that I was engaged in. That, this was up at, um, I don't want to say where it was. It was a modern, yeah, it was a modern Zen practice. And everybody, I mean, that, uh, that was just where that was where it resolved and nothingness and emptiness that the self is nothing and you know that we, that we all aspire and none of it ever made any sense but that we aspire to emptiness well what, what's that, what do you mean but but because every sunday i sat with a group of 150 people that agreed that that's what we were doing and i happened to be best friends with the head teacher who is to this day he's still one of the, the greatest guys the funniest man i ever met and so I followed along with it 
because I wanted to be a part of that crew yeah. until I stepped back a little bit and realized what I was doing. Why would I want to aspire to nothingness and emptiness? What does that mean about me? What is, I mean, really, that, and that, that's what caused me to start looking at what the Buddha actually talked to them. It didn't make sense that a human being awakened, and I believe that a human being awakened, would teach annihilation. It didn't make sense. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't make sense, does it? It's amazing how throughout history that's so common, too. Like, yeah. And you even said yourself, like, you, you were doing that for a while before you realized, you know, this isn't right. This annihilation is so far from our human nature. Yeah, and, and the other, the like the Tibetan uh, practices that I took my vows in ultimately resolved in the same thing, even though they called it different things. You know, even the idea that um, human beings can't awaken anymore or that it would take endless eons. That's the same to me. That's the same as annihilation. And yet, because I wanted to be a part of that group, I went along with that idea. But it all gnawed at me. I think it gnaws at everybody. I mean, I remember coming out of seven and ten days sashims with a few people that were being honest about what they went through, just shaking their heads, saying this was really one of the one of the worst experiences of their lives, and we didn't understand why we're doing it. But yet, you know, the same small group of people every year would trudge up to a certain place in New York State, not where we go, and go through this again and again and again, thinking that we were going to get something out of it. But there wasn't anything there. But it was. It was also. Um, it, it was. It, it was. It was unexamined, wasn't it? If you really looked at what these things were, and it, uh, they're almost childish in their beliefs. When I started looking at it, and I'm not trying to put people down, or I mean, I was a part of that, and I still have a lot of friends in it, but. To me, the way I look at things now, I'm going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> let me just say this one. I think we'll all agree. It's foolish to look at to look at an obvious fabrication and insist that it's real, isn't it? Especially that I'm so important that I should rule the world rather than just be present for this moment, you know? And I guess that's what I'm saying. So I'm, I'm glad that I've been able to do that, that I'm no longer the one that's directing everything. Just, just this little bit. Yeah. Thank you, Laura. Here's Julia. Hello, Julia. Good morning. Thank you for the teaching. Hi, virtual Sangha. <laughs> um, that's what you just said, John. It made me really pause because it's a really good segue to I think there's a lot in this sutta that is very clear and, but there's so many levels of extrapolative thinking that you can yeah. go through, especially when we're talking about zooming around outer space, right? Like the first time before at the beginning or the middle of the sutta, when you mentioned that, and when David brought it up again, I don't know, I, I guess like I can feel myself going down a, not using the limited path right now, but yeah. I'm confused because that we do have humans who are going into outer space. And yeah, so help me get out of that, like, wah, 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 
Yeah. Well, are you going into outer space? I'm not interested in going into outer space. I am really grounded and grateful for a limiting path that helps me use to like avoid wrong view or be conscious of veering into wrong view and just like be present for this moment and this planet and this garden and this sutta and not be doing all those annihilative escapist kooky bananas uh, I don't know but here I am like well yeah so so doing some judging I think um they, there's people what did I just hear this past week somebody spent a quarter million dollars and got on a, a some kind of plane that took them up into like near space right. um that's pretty cool but that's still just a human experience isn't it mm -hmm. there's nothing uh, for the person if i did that mm -hmm. um i would hope i would leave i make them behind and just be present for it rather than think i'm some really hot piece of something because i got to be able to do it right, right? so that's two different ways that you could experience the same thing so that's just the idea that I could get on a plane if I had the money and experience. I, mean, I think that if I had the money, I would do it, right? But I'm not going to be doing it. Um, but that's just an experience. And so you could even attach dukkha to that experience, right? Well, it's over. You know, I might, I might do it and come back to Earth and say, wow, that was really a waste of a quarter million dollars or whatever, you know, I mean, you know, um, I, I remember when I, I, I was um, in my early 30s and I was making a lot of money and I thought one of the things that when you do and make a lot of money is you just buy a new car every year. And for a few years, I bought a new car. I still remember driving off the lot. Once when I bought a beautiful Cutlass Sierra, they only made it a couple of years because it ended up being a piece of junk. But, uh, but I bought it from from the advertising, and it was the, the coolest, hottest, fastest, best handling car ever made. Um, I paid twenty one thousand dollars for it, which was a lot of money back then. I still remember how it felt driving off the lot in Summit, New Jersey, and my first thought—I mean, this is how you know—my first thought was, "I just lost twenty percent," because that's you know, and. So even though I was buying new cars, I couldn't enjoy it because I was caught up in the how much they were rather than just, okay, I got the money to buy it. Let me enjoy it. So there's all kinds of things that we can do as human beings. And as human beings, we should do the things that interest us most, that we're most curious about. Bridget was mentioning curiosity. Curiosity is why I, I looked hard to find out what the Buddha actually taught. Curiosity is a great thing, as long as we don't insist that our curiosity lead our life rather than our understanding, right? So in this moment, I might be, um, tomorrow I might be getting on that jet to go into, into subspace, but right here, right now, I'm teaching a Dhamma class, and I hope I'm here for it, you know, or right here, right now, I'm talking to my children. And I want to be present for my children or my spouse or my dog or my golf game, whatever it might be. I want to be present for this moment, not a next moment, you know, not a, not a moment of um, 
achievement as much as a moment of peace and calm and understanding. So did I get off base with that answer? No, it's it's decent. I can I can connect any other dots that were okay. outside of the limiting path. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, and you understand that the eightfold path is a limiting path for that reason. Yeah. To keep us here, keep us present. So that's a great question. Thank you, Julie. Hello, Ram. <clears throat> Coming back to that question that Adam asked, <clears throat> why did we go there? You know, why did we consistently always go there? <clears throat> these magical places. Um, I think it's almost natural. It's almost built into the human mind to want to do that. And that doesn't answer why. No, well, because it's, it, asking why is, is usually wrong if you ask how. Um, <clears throat> but the instructions of of, uh, of the four jhanas kind of has a has a a warning built into it. You start just by seclusion. You, know, you start right here. Yeah. And Taking joy in that seclusion. And you have joy in that seclusion. And as you continue, there will be signs on the way. There will be roadside attraction. Don't get stuck there. And when you don't get stuck there, you'll end up back right here. Now. Yeah. Now, Which is that the fourth level of jhana as well. The fourth level of jhana. Yeah. It's, it's the simplest yeah. uh, place to be. Yeah. And to come back to, to uh, uh, asking that question and asking a lot of good, but really interesting questions uh, and his role in the, in the, in the Sangha. Um, you know, he was, he was the one, because he wasn't focused upon, on awakening. He was focused on keeping his cousin alive. Yeah, it was. He was a. I mean, people that don't know, Ananda was was his cousin's attendant throughout most of his life, and part of that was make sure he kept old uh, Siddhartha alive. I just read a, a bit of the the Mahaparinibbana uh, Sutta, and you know he's, he's coming up to the end, and you know you've got one near miss where the Buddha's getting really sick. Yeah. But you, you see his constant focus there. And in the end, the Buddha actually says, you could have asked me to stay home. You could have asked me, and you didn't. And, and, um, and Ananda has, has a really hard time with that. Yeah. Um, but he's just such an interesting fellow. He's a, he's because, a human being. Yeah. And, and you, you hear, and, and there, there's that one sutta where the Buddha says, you know, don't do this again. Yeah. And he said, I won't hover over you, but I will remind you of the Dharma from time to time. Yeah. So he, the Buddha was recognizing that this is going on with him, and he recognized, too, that this is what the Sangha needed. Yeah. Well, yeah, and but we do, we do that here. This the, 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 that, that interaction between the Buddha and his cousin Ananda mm -hmm. is 
is represented right here. Yeah. Questions are answered. Things are brought up. Right. And they're answered in this room in relation to the Dhamma. Kind of plays the role of the of the, the novice speaker all the time. Yeah. Ask the really like, basic questions. Yeah, but I think he had, I think he had a, a certain quality of mind that kept him, that didn't keep him in from awakening. But um, kept him kept him seeing the very subtle levels of the Dhamma and being able to say, hey, wait a minute. What about this? What he, and then what is it becoming? And he's the yeah. he's the one that asks his, his cousin, becoming, becoming. What is becoming? And you know, it's becoming awakened, becoming ignorant. It's a yeah. Yeah, Both I, both Ram and I have a kind of a fondness for Ananda. Yeah, he's, he's kind of the everyman yeah. in a way. But but on the other hand, there's that that really brilliant line in there. He, he asked, he asked oh, yeah. the question. The people that, you know, the smart guys asked the questions. Well, yeah, and it, it, it is said that because Ananda had, had a word-perfect memory, that he was able to maintain, or keep the suttas. He, you know, he could, when they, when, after the Buddha died, they went to the first Buddhist council. It was Ananda and Upeka who basically presented what the Buddha had taught for 45 years. And Ananda would say, yeah, on such and such a day, such and such and such a year, and this is what the Buddha said. And then the other, I think it was a hundred, would say, yeah, that's how we remember it. And that was when they said, okay, that's a sutta. And that's how, this, that's how we have these suttas today. You know, we're still reading. I'm yeah, still... Before the council, he was told he couldn't go there. Yeah. He wasn't awakened. Yeah. And so now, uh, you know, basically at that point, I think he realized, okay, this thing that I've been focused on for all this time, it's done. Yeah, it's time for him to get his stuff together. I can, I can let go of that, that attachment. Yeah. That was like, yeah, that's his central attachment. It's his central craving is, yeah. you know, keep this guy alive. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. That was great. Hello, David. I'm also John. Thanks. Thank you. So any questions about this, uh, this suit Nobody, nobody's confused by it, because it could be confusing, but it really isn't. You know? And it all resolves itself in this present moment, just being liberated in this moment, rightly self-awakened. All right, we'll finish as we usually do with Meta. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on Metta describing an awakened, fully mature human being. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. 
They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, admitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you. Peace, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend. See you all online. See you, Jeff. See you, Mary. See you, Bye. Kevin. Thanks, John. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.